1: To save the Christian faith, we need to abandon it. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. I thought about this sentence recently when I read a Christianity Today article entitled Evangelicals Have Four Proposals for Harmonizing Genesis and Evolution. It's by Jay Johnson. It's a book review of a book by a Calvin University professor named Lauren Harzma. We'll get into the article in just a few minutes, but before I do... I want to note at the outset of this humble little podcast that it has often been a part of the Church's strategy to promote the Christian faith, to abandon aspects of that faith, to whittle away the problematic parts of Christian doctrine in order to make disciples so-called of the next generation. And this project frequently takes root in jettisoning the Old Testament From the Christian faith. Numerous figures throughout Christian history have taken this step in their own form. Numerous theologians, so called, have argued that the Church needs to effectively set aside the Old Testament from its witness. It's no longer relevant. It no longer gives us the picture of God we need. The basic argument that many different figures in Church history have offered is that we once needed the Old Testament, specifically the Jews once needed the Old Testament. It was a kind of record of their faith, but no longer do we need it because it gives us an outmoded picture an ancient uh blood dripping picture of god there's all sorts of myth baked into it with particular regard to the creation account and modern individuals, or even just individuals over the course of church history, don't need such myths. We're not Jews any longer. There's a transition to Christ. The faith has broadened to the Gentiles. And so basically, the Old Testament is seen as the historical record of faith of the Jews, and it is not really needed, relevant, or even desired any longer. The original voice along these lines was the heretic Marcion. Marcion separated the God of the Old Testament from Christ and the New Testament vision of God the Father. And this is because Marcion did not believe that God could be wrathful. So what Marcion effectively did is discarded the Old Testament and then edited heavily the New Testament. So one of the very first figures in all of church history, Uh, To teach false teaching was a man who had major, major problems with the Old Testament and specifically separated the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. This shows us that the Old Testament being in the crosshairs is not a new reality in 2022 with this Christianity Today article and the work of BioLogos and other outlets. uh, William Lane Craig's recent material and book, for example, know the Old Testament has always been a subject of major controversy and debate in particular. Uh, the early chapters of Genesis, as well as the picture of God the Father throughout the Old Testament as wrathful and needing to be appeased by blood atonement. If we fast forward even more than thousands of years, uh, to the modern period, we, we hear Adolf Harnack say this about the Old Testament. To reject the Old Testament in the second century would have been a mistake with which the church, excuse me, correctly opposed. To keep it in the 16th century was a fate from which the church could not escape. But to conserve it in the 19th century, when Harnack is writing, as a canonical doctrine, document of Protestantism, is the result of a theological and ecclesial paralysis. That is some strong language. What Harnack is saying is that we cannot conserve the Old Testament any longer. It is not relevant for us. Instead, we need to lay it aside and privilege the New Testament instead. Friedrich Schleiermacher argued much the same idea. For Schleiermacher, the Old Testament was foreign. So uh, the Old Testament uh, has relevance as a kind of appendix to the New Testament for Schleiermacher but uh, that's only because Christian preaching depends upon some of the vocabulary and ideas of the Old Testament. Nonetheless, Schleiermacher argued that the Old Testament is not a core part of our faith. It is foreign to us. It is not the basis of our faith. Christianity is a genuinely new faith, uh, not in the sense that the New Testament gives us the New Covenant. We, we all know that, uh, those of us who are born-again believers. No, Christianity is divorced from the Old Testament for Schleiermacher. Rudolf Boltmann in the 20th century, Schleiermacher's in the 19th, gives us a similar kind of idea. Bultmann argues that the Old Testament tells us About the Jews and their dealings with God. So the Old Testament gives us effectively the gospel of the Jews, but it is not for the church any longer. The cosmology of the Old Testament, for example, is outmoded, according to Bultmann. The world that is, the vision of the world, the vision of heaven, the world, and then hell that the Old Testament introduces and the New Testament develops does not fit any longer with the thinking and paradigm of modern man for bultmann natural science dictates the agenda and natural science has shown us has shown the intelligent man that the universe is a closed system the universe is not an open system open that is to divine guiding and providence no the universe according to natural science according to bultmann is closed And so you should not look for explanations for why things work the way they do or even why everything exists in the Old Testament because that is outmoded cosmology. Here is a quote from Bultmann. Can the Christian proclamation today expect men and women to acknowledge the mythical world picture of both the Old and New Testament as true? To do so would be pointless and impossible. It would be pointless because there is nothing specifically Christian about the mythical world picture, which is simply the world picture of a time now past, which was not yet formed by scientific thinking. Ah, That last sentence gives us a very nice encapsulation of the view that I am sketching here, and I will be responding to in this podcast. Today, we no longer need the world picture, as Bultmann says, of a time now past. Once upon a time, the Jews, with their kind of pious, mythical worldview needed these myths. That's a very frequently used Bultmannian phrase in order to make sense of things. But now Bultmann is arguing in the 20th century, mid 20th century, we have scientific discovery and man thinks scientifically. And so we no longer need that, again, outmoded mythical world picture or worldview. Today, what we focus on is the pursuit of science. So basically, we have this document that meant something for people in the past, the Old Testament, and even the mythological elements of the New Testament, and we no longer need that. What we need to do is demythologize the entire Bible and the New Testament and the Christian faith, and thus keep the parts that are not mythological. And what we need to do furthermore is live by the code of science, think according to science, and not let uh, pious, fundamentalist uh, worldview elements creep into a properly scientific grid that Christians, professing Christians, should embrace. In this worldview that I have quickly pulled together from numerous figures over a thousand, several thousand year period, there is a common thread. And it is that we don't need the Old Testament for our worldview. We do need science. And if we bring this now into 2022, and I engage and now will read from some sections of the article from Jay Johnson for Christianity Today that I referenced a few minutes ago entitled, Evangelicals Have Four Proposals for Harmonizing Genesis and Evolution, then we will see that this conviction is alive and well today. In fact, the strategy here in this CT article from Jay Johnson, who's associated with BioLogos and other groups— is apologetic from the start. Let me read. Despite appearances, the phenomenon of deconstruction isn't new, and the story researcher David Kinnaman told in his 2011 book, You Lost Me, still rings true. Young people have been leaving the faith in increasing numbers for decades, Johnson writes, and one of the main reasons is the perceived anti-science mindset of the church. Ah, well, this is a a clever strategy. Let's uh, say that from the jump. Johnson is not saying you quirky quacky evangelicals who believe in your literal understanding of Genesis, uh, you, you need to just you need to dig in and understand that's not true. No, there's a, a sharper hook that we have here and it is that deconstruction is happening in part, in large part because of the so-called anti-science mindset of the church. What this means, Uh, translated, is that conservative Christians are letting their young people, letting their youth be stolen away by secularists because those very same conservative evangelicals are not properly embracing evolution and incorporating evolutionary insight into their Christian worldview and their doctrinal system. So what needs to take place in order for deconstruction not to lead to the loss of faith, is that uh, the church needs to basically embrace evolution and a scientific grid. That's what is going to solve the problem of the generational bleed of the church. We're losing our young people. We're losing them because the church isn't pro-science enough. And so what we need to do is embrace the secular understanding of the cosmos, at least From the outset and then merge it with Christian faith and biblical material moving ahead, according to Johnson, being anti evolution fits with being anti lockdown measures, which is very, very bad. Uh, Let me quote, the anti-mask, anti-vaccine stance of far too many conservative pastors and pundits added fuel to the fire, but the evangelical problem with science ultimately comes down to resistance to secular, in air quotes, evolutionary science, which is set in opposition to the biblical narrative. Of course, Johnson writes, all evangelical Christians feel a duty to be faithful to scripture, but is it possible to leave room for evolution and remain faithful to the inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of God's? word. This is very interesting framing, because <laughs> true born-again believers do not merely feel a duty to be faithful to Scripture, as Johnson writes. We are commanded by God to obey His word, every single jot and tittle of it, knowing that none of that has passed away, knowing that none of the word of God is outmoded or is bad uh, or should be jettisoned. Instead, we Our central duty is to think and live according to the Word of God. That's basically what Christianity is. We can only do that by the power of divine grace working in us such that we have faith in Christ, in the gospel message, and claim the blood of Jesus Christ as our cleansing for sin and trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our rising from the grave. When we repent of our sin and trust in Christ, then we are born again, and now we not only feel like we should be faithful to Scripture, we are soldiers under orders, and we are not only uh, suggested that we uh, believe in Scripture, it is commanded That we believe in every word of God. We think of a text like 1 Thessalonians 2.13 in the New Testament, which teaches us that there is a sharp antithesis between the word of God on the one hand and the word of men. The word of God and the word of men are not quantitatively distinct. It's not that, in other words, according to Paul, the word of God has a lot more truth loaded into it than the word of men. It's not that there's a quantitative difference. That is, it's that there's a qualitative difference. The Word of God is fundamentally different from any word man can produce, even very good and helpful words. We're not setting, of course, the Word of God in opposition to the Word of men in the sense that any Word of men that would be spoken is evil. We are saying, though, once more, there is a qualitative difference between the revelation of God, the Scripture, And whatever men would say, write, think, and produce. So our quest as Christians then all our days is not to fit our worldview to any secular paradigm, any non-Christian paradigm. Our fundamental duty is to walk in lockstep with the Word of God, to live a kind of Psalm 119 faith— and walk according to the path of God's Word. Go wherever the Word takes us. We're not choosing and selecting which parts of the Word of God we like and want to believe. Christians come to some different conclusions about different passages, yes, but we're not doing theological buffet when it comes to the Word of God as true believers. We are seeking to walk, to go wherever the path of God takes us. It doesn't always take us places that yield a lot of popularity and applause. The Word of God has numerous passages and several doctrines that are going to put us absolutely in conflict with a fallen world. If you don't know that from the outset, though, you are set up not just for trouble, but for disaster. There's a real need for preachers and teachers of the Word today to make what I just spelled out quickly— plain from their pulpit. We need men who will help the church grapple with the reality that there is a a remarkable antithesis between Christianity and every other system. It's not that there's no common grace in the world, but what we need our people to understand is that God's truth is different from man's systems. God's truth is absolutely objectively true. Let God be true, therefore, and every man a liar. What this means in practice is that Christianity is true truth, to use Schaeffer's term. We will find unbelievers understanding elements of the truth and even teaching some truths in our world, to be sure, but we must not start from the foundational idea that Christianity is going to frequently harmonize with secular or unbelieving thought, it is often going to conflict sharply with unbelieving thought, depending on where we are and in what era we find ourselves. If we will help people to understand that, if we'll help young people, by the way, the youth in your church, the children you're raising in your home, uh, the young men and women you know and are acquainted with, and in particular, if pastors will do this and elders of the church, men who have this responsibility to shepherd the flock from God, if we will collectively, led by our elders and pastors, help our young people understand the contrast, the difference between Christianity and every system, we will not solve every hard issue right on the spot, but we will set them up, not to be lured away and taken off the solid rock of the Word of God. More on that in a few moments. In Johnson's article for CT, he covers the book When Did Sin Begin, mentioned earlier by Lauren Harzma, a Calvin University physics professor. And Harzma, according to Johnson, gives four options for how we harmonize evolution and original sin. Let me quickly read them so that we put them on the record. The first option— God selected Adam and Eve from an existing population to represent all of humanity. Second, God selected Adam and Eve from an existing population to represent humanity, but after being expelled from the garden, their sinfulness was spread to others by culture or genealogy. Third, Adam and Eve aren't literal individuals. Rather, Genesis 2-3 is a stylized retelling of many human events compressed into a single archetypal story. Fourth, Adam and Eve are symbolic figures in an archetypal story over a long period of time. Humans become morally accountable through general revelation, yet they chose sin. What we need to point out, there's a lot to say, of course, about these four proposals. There's an avalanche to say in truth, but what I will just very quickly respond uh, and note is this. None of these four options, my air quotes, gives us what Genesis 1 through 3 straightforwardly presents, that Genesis 1 through 3 is an actual record of creation, it has poetic elements, of course, that we can all appreciate and love, and yet Genesis 1 through 3 should not be classed, as some passages of Scripture should, as symbolic If Genesis 1 through 3, for example, is a kind of symbolic presentation of eschatology, then we do have grounds for saying, okay, um, this is going to happen. God is signifying that. But elements in this narrative, in this historical account, are symbolic. They're not to be taken directly, literally. That is not, however, what Genesis 1 through 3 is. That's not what Genesis 1 through 11 is. Genesis 1 through 11 is presented to us by Moses Quill as historical, and therefore we take it as historical literature, and therefore Adam and Eve, to compress details here, are indeed actual flesh and blood human people made, as Genesis 2 in particular outlines, directly by divine action such that the world exists from them, with them, at the start. Adam is the first man. Adam is the first human being. He is made by God from the dust of the earth, Genesis 2-7. Eve is his wife, made to be his helper, made from his rib, Genesis 2-20-22. And these two individuals uh, are made as the first family by God, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife brought together by God, showing us God's divine design, God's creational intent, divine order in God the cosmos. This language then in Genesis, this section of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3 or 1 through 11 more broadly, should not be understood in symbolic or unliteral terms. It is not a stylized retelling. Uh, It is not a gloss on the origin of (laughs) the cosmos, the origin of the earth in particular. No, instead, it is an actual historical account that does not necessarily Uh, address every question we would ask God about the creation, and yet does give us all the glorious truth that God wants us to have about both the why of the earth and the how of the earth with its origins. That is my response. So, by extension then, Christian, when you are reading Genesis 1 through 3, 1 through 11 more broadly, you are getting God's own account of how the earth began, how it all started, why we are here, what we are here for. This is not language that is supposed to give you a kind of uh, mytho historical portrait that isn't grounded in reality, but does give you theological ideas you need to make sense of the later doctrines of the Christian faith. No. Genesis 1 through 3, 1 through 11 more broadly is historical. It has been shaped, it has clearly elements uh, that show. Shaping of the account in a kind of poetic way. There's a structure, I mean, uh, to Genesis 1, for example, that, that shows us that reality. And yet, it's historical. It's showing us how Adam and Eve came to exist. It's showing us how the man and woman came into existence. It's showing us that God loves manhood and God loves womanhood. God created each. It's showing us tragically how the human race fell away from God and why there is sin, evil, suffering, pain, and death in our world with regard to Genesis 3. So, Genesis 1 through 3 is vital and historical and true. And Genesis 1 through 11 is vital and historical and true. And with that foundation, we are not left in the mists of confusion with regard to either the why or the how of cosmology we have the answers that humanity quests after but cannot find outside of the revelation of God. This is not a little asterisk-like detail in the Christian worldview. If God is not the creator that he claims to be, the entire Christian system is profoundly destabilized, which is exactly why many who buy into a harmonization, so-called, of faith and evolution, do end up losing their faith. This is precisely why lots of young people who hear the kind of presentation that Johnson is giving, that Harzma unfolds in his book, do walk away from the Christian faith. They walk away because when they hear that what the Bible presents as historical is not historical, and thus is not true in the sense that we take historical statements, they recognize rightly that the whole framework of the Christian faith is now in ashes. The whole house has been rocked by a tremendous earthquake, such that it doesn't even look like a house anymore. It could appear, this cannot happen, but that the solid rock of God's word has a massive crack in it that no one can put together. You can't do that to the word of God, but what the embrace of Christian faith and secular evolution does is precisely that. It seems to issue a tremendous, unsolvable gap between the Christian faith and Genesis 1 through 11. You can't bring them together. You must break them apart. Other parts, to be clearer, of the Bible are true, but the early chapters of Genesis are not historically true. They may be symbolically true or theologically true or mythically true, but there is not a marriage, a total marriage, a beautiful marriage of history and truth, of history and doctrine. There is instead a widening gap between the two, and the very first few pages of the Bible you can't take in the way they present themselves if you start people off from that foundational claim, you have set their entire system up, not just for destabilization, that is true, that will come, but ultimately for the loss of all Christian faith altogether. You cannot bring together light and darkness. There cannot be a marriage of true Biblical doctrine with secular, unbiblical ideas. We are being urged to make that partnership, to form that joint stock company today from all sorts of angles. And what it amounts to is merging, as I say, light and darkness from the words of Christ in the New Testament. You cannot merge Christianity with secularism. You cannot merge Christianity with any unbeliever's thought. You must not do this. If you do this, you are doing exactly what Jesus says cannot be done. You are bringing together, harmonizing, marrying the light of God's truth with the darkness of man's unbelief. Scripture is not an open book. It is not an open source book, I mean. It is not a book that is subject to editing. It is not the foundational code, and now we bring in our own code, and we merge the two. Scripture is the code. It's everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, three. It's everything we need, that is, to form a biblical worldview. There's nothing that we are lacking in Scripture for Zdoe, life, and godliness, Eusebia. Life and godliness. We have everything we need, everything we could want for a biblical worldview. We already have. God has not left us lacking any truth. God has not invited Any unbeliever, however brilliant, to the table and said, why don't you fill out this portion of the system of Christian doctrine because my word didn't cover that sufficiently. So I need you, unbeliever, rank, God-defying unbeliever to add your insight to my truth. If you are hearing such a presentation in any area of the Christian system, any area of doctrine, any area of theology, any exegetical place, then you need to have your ears very much perked. You need to ask hard questions and have hard discussion. You need to figure out exactly what is motivating that claim, and then you need to absolutely reject it. You need to not embrace strongholds, in other words, unbelieving ideologies as they press in upon you, 2 Corinthians ten three to 6 What does Paul say that he does? He says that he destroys strongholds. S- strongholds means ungodly, unbiblical, unbelieving ideas, systems, views, doctrines. You don't make room for them at any point in your Christian walk, in your Christian worldview. You're called to destroy them, not to merge them with your Christian faith. But this is truly, again, in numerous areas today, the temptation of the age not to reject Christianity outright. That is not Satan's most common present scheme that he is using. Instead, Satan is active in and amongst the church, whispering in many, many ears, not to come out and openly first reject the Christian faith. That will come later, make no mistake, and very publicly at that. No, the first move is to, is to cause people to stop destroying strongholds and start embracing them. That is to say, to merge light and darkness, to bring in Uh, an alien host into your body. Effectively, this is like in a bodily sense, taking something from a forest, taking something from the outside realm and trying to plant it into your body as anyone who has ever had even the tiniest little splinter in their figure. Yes, in the Strand household these days, Certain unnamed family members will occasionally, those who are more rambunctious than others perhaps, acquire a splinter. And thus, parental services are required and sometimes rendered with varying degrees of success as dad and mom attempt to work that little tiny, tiny little sliver of a splinter out of a finger. And some of you out there who are dads and moms or who are perhaps yourself suffering from splinter acquisition will know how painful just, just the tiniest little splinter can be. Think about this. When you actually take out a splinter, is it usually eight inches long? When you remove a splinter from your child's finger as a loving father or loving mother, you usually have to squint And pull your finger, some of you know what I'm saying, even as I say this right now, all the way up to your eye because it is so tiny. It's infinitesimal. It's truly almost invisible. But, friends, what did that splinter do in your child? Well, it caused real pain, it didn't fit, it reddened their little finger, it caused distress. And tears, not just pain on the part of your child. Your child knew, playing out there in the woods, as hopefully our kids can today, get them off the screens, yes, your child knew that something was wrong. Your child knew that something had invaded his or her body, something that is not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to have wood in your body at all times. Just stick some wood. Think about that. The next family trip you take. Hopefully you got a family vacation planned for the summer. The next one you take, you just go into a forest and and as a loving dad or mom, just stick splinters, pieces of wood left and right into your kids and see what fun you have. Yes? No. That's what we're talking about. That's what happens when you embrace ungodly systems And ideas, even just one, it is an alien host invading and harming and hurting your body. And there is a real sense for the true believer, I mean, for the true Christian, not the fake one, not the one who's just professing faith. The one who is truly converted knows instinctually in a kind of shock and alarm sense that something is wrong when they hear lies from the pulpit, when they hear a merger of secularism and Christianity, when they glimpse, when they listen to a presentation that merges unbiblical philosophy, unbelieving philosophy with the Christian faith, they know. They know a host Something outside is puncturing the skin of their faith. They know something is wrong. I'm not talking necessarily about trained theologians. In most cases, those aren't the people I'm thinking of here. I'm thinking of people who over the last couple years in particular have written me And different social media platforms, which I very much struggle to check and stay up on, messages that indicate that they have heard in lots of different areas, secular ideas being brought into the church from the pulpit, from teachers, from theologians, from books, and they know it's wrong. And they don't necessarily have all the training and the vocabulary and the system to counter these unbelieving strongholds that are trying through satanic energy to take them captive, but they do know something is off and they do feel a sense of shock and alarm and distress. And they're right to, because this is Satan's most common scheme today. And the devil is seeking to pull many away from the truth. Do you understand that Satan is trying to push you off the solid rock of the Word of God? Do you know that Satan is trying to do this every single day you live? He is not just trying to do it with little eight-year-olds. He is not only trying to do it with 16-year-olds or 21-year-olds. He is trying to do it with you if you are 29, 35, 43, 52, 65, 79, 88, and 106. Satan is trying to do this to everyone at all times, in all places, in all situations. He wants you to leave the solid rock of the Word of God. He wants you to merge light and darkness. He is working every angle on the church right now. I can't see him, but I can see his handiwork. And you can too. And you know that the central challenge of the age is to resist the merging of the Christian faith with unbelief. And God, give us men who will stand against this. God give us elders and pastors who will speak against this. And then God give us men and women who will raise their, kil- their children Excuse me to resist this. And then God give us generations in the church who will know the truth, who will recognize when their skin is being punctured by lies, and who will seek as quickly as they can to get the tweezers, and remove that painful little splinter from the flesh. If they do not, what happens to a splinter? Well, what happens with a particularly bad one is it doesn't just sit there and cause you some discomfort. It can ultimately fester. It could ultimately have such bad consequences that you could even lose a limb. You could even die from this kind of tiny little problem so let's take these matters seriously back to johnson johnson argues in a somewhat confusing passage that sin is not transmitted as he says through genes or by genealogy instead sin is transmitted through culture let me read from the ct article in question by j johnson lines on a family tree with regard to sin don't make a person a sinner on the other hand the method of cultural transfer is obvious the fruit eaten in the the fruit eaten in the garden excuse me was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil knowledge is learned or learned not inherited in the genes or by genealogy passing down knowledge from one generation to the next is virtually the definition of culture This is left opaque in Johnson's review of Harzma's book for CT, but what is being said here uh, equates to, amounts to, a changing of our understanding of the transmission of sin from one that is inherited, sin being inherited by every person in Adam, passed down from Adam to every successive generation, to an understanding of sin in which we learn sin We understand sin. We know what sin is by learning it, not by inheriting it in the genes or by genealogy. And so this is a tweaking of our understanding of the transfer of sinfulness. This equates to arguing that sin is passed down through culture, not through the generations. This is very problematic, for example, if you think through federal headship, the federal headship of Adam, and then the federal headship of Christ, which I affirm. But you have to understand, as I have said numerous times, even on just this humble little episode, that theology does not come to you, whether from the Bible itself or whether from anyone else, in terms of isolated little pieces. It always comes to you in systems, So if you tweak one area of the system, you are tweaking other areas of the system, and what I mean here is that if you do not hold to a historical Adam who sins against God in a real historical fall in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, then what you're going to have to do is exactly what Johnson does in this article, this review, and you're going to have to tweak your doctrine of sin such that sin is not inherited, it's not an inherited natural condition, a very nature In the human person, every single human person, no, instead it is learned by knowledge. You tweak one area of the system, other ripple effects will follow. Well, we have considered numerous elements of uh, Johnson's proposal. Even if you never read this article that I have engaged here on this episode— uh, even if you don't read anything Jay Johnson writes or Lauren Harzma writes, even if you have no engagement with Calvin University or something like this, you should know that this is absolutely live ammo today. This is a tremendously important matter theologically, spiritually, and apologetically for Christians. The doctrine of creation from the Word of God is under unremitting assault today and this doctrine is the very first doctrine scripture presents in truth genesis 1 for example is giving us multiple doctrines at once it is telling us that god is real and god exists and god is the ruler and god is the creator and we're getting this through revelation so multiple doctrines are entwined even in genesis 1 Again, doctrines are systems, and yet we need to note that the, in terms of the first historical accounts of Scripture, what we're getting is the doctrine of creation, not the doctrine of salvation first or last things first. These things are all connected, but we are first getting the doctrine of origins, and so we need to know four things in conclusion to this episode. First, we need to know, we need to just put it on record. You need to believe this. As a Christian, Genesis one through eleven is not myth; it is history. Genesis one through eleven gives us a real historical account of the earliest years of the created order that God makes. So, if someone says something like Genesis one through eleven is mythological, is mythopoetic, is mythohistorical, any kind of framing like that. Or Genesis 1-11 through 11 is symbolic. If you have a child in a so-called Christian college or university or Christian school in younger years, and they come back and they say that their teacher is teaching this, you need to know that this is material that will at best destabilize them and at worst take them off the solid rock of the Word of God. This is not merely one of multiple doctrines that we safeguard from the Word of God. This is the foundational doctrine in terms of the narrative of Scripture. Scripture begins with God, through His speech, creating everything that exists. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally exist, pre-exist. There is no created matter that exists eternally alongside alongside God. So Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1, the, the first chapter, is not giving us myth, it's giving us history, and it's further giving us the very first stone upon which the whole system of Christian truth and theology is built. If you take it away, at best, you very much destabilize the entire system. And at worst, as is occurring all around us today, you lead people to walk off of the solid rock and plummet into thin air and ultimately eternal destruction. Second response, every human person sins because we inherit a sin nature from Adam. Do we learn elements of sin as unbelievers in this world? You better believe we do. Yet, why do we sin? We sin because we have a sin nature. It comes naturally to us. Adam's fall is our fall. We all fall in Adam. To brush up on this, read Romans 4 and 5 as just one place in Scripture that makes clear the connection between Adam and every person who exists. We do bad things because Adam ate bad fruit. Third. The scripture gives us the worldview we need to understand why all things exist and how all things exist. God has claimed cosmological origins. I don't know if the folks at Biologos or the, the folks who claim to be an evangelical and yet an evolutionist know what other passages in the word of God say, but there is a chorus around the doctrine of creation that only backs up what Genesis 1, 1 through 3, 1 through 11, most broadly, claims. Think of a passage like Isaiah 66, 1 to 2a, just to give you one reference. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Let me read that again for you. The second part, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God is not saying that he has a physical hand, but God is saying that he is the one who has created all things. He's created everything, all these things, all these things. There's a repetition. What's in view in verse one, heaven and earth, everything before God, He has made every element of the created order comes directly from God. There's nothing that is outside divine agency. It all flows from divine agency. So scripture doesn't just have one place where God claims that he is the creator. Scripture has numerous places that show us, don't suggest to us, show us that God has made everything that creation owes to him. That there is no sense, then, in which we need naturalistic science to understand how the world is came how the world came to be. What we need to understand, the origins of the earth, is found in Scripture. Scientists can trace the handiwork of God in the created order. Unbelieving scientists can. They can understand laws and processes in this world, even without Christian faith, even while militating against Christian faith in their heart. So wherever there is truth to be discovered, people can discover it because of God's common grace, because we're image bearers and we can understand truth in this world, not ultimately, but we can understand uh, truths that God has placed here. But that never means that the unbeliever himself has the truth. It never means that the unbeliever's system should be merged with the Christian system. The unbeliever is always borrowing from God's Wi-Fi when he understands truth. He's always uncovering not neutral facts in the cosmos, neutral realities, neutral truths, but God's truths, God's realities. God's order. That's what every person who studies any element of what exists, any academic discipline, any field, any vocation that involves the discovery of what is true and real and good and beautiful is finding. They're not finding any neutral molecule. Every molecule is God's. Everybody loves to quote Abraham Kuyper saying, there's not a single inch of the cosmos that Christ has not claimed, that he does not shout mine over. And that is a glorious quote. But it's not just that Christ has claimed that everything is his. He has. It is that every fact is God's fact. And it was so from the beginning. And Christ has come. Christ dies and rises again to reclaim it and lock in The new creation of all things. That's a broader discussion, but just know this. Any fact that exists is God's fact. It will not necessarily be presented that way. Unbelievers certainly will not credit the biblical God through saving faith as they should in natural terms. But every element of truth and reality that can be known and discovered and studied and even appreciated by the unbelieving mind and heart owes squarely and directly to God. As we talked about previously, then the knowledge of God is immediately apprehended by every person. Every person knows God exists. It's not that every person needs to be convinced that God exists, s- such that every person is convincible. Every person knows. Every person, Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 21, knows God. The things about God have been plainly seen. In what? The things that have been made. Are you getting a sense here for how Scripture harmonizes? The harmonization we need to effect is not the harmonization of belief and rank unbelief. The harmonization we need to perceive. We don't do it. It's done. If we will just see it by, by study of the Word of God is the harmonization of the Scripture. It's that God has given us the book of books. It's that Romans 1 tells us that the creation is not in any sense naturalistic. No, it's the creation. Just that term says everything. Creation then witnesses to everyone... Of the eternal power and divine nature of God. A statement that we need to explore in greater depth, but even at face value, figures in profoundly and powerfully to this conversation. When you are seeing the created order, when you are living in the created order, even if you can't see, you already have immediate awareness that God is real that you are just a little bitty speck of dust made by God for his glory. But God is the creator. You, as an unbeliever far from God, know this. You don't need proofs. You don't need a reasonable faith, so-called. You don't need a Christianity shorn of the elements that the culture despises for you to trust and know God. What you need is you need to know that God exists from general revelation, which is telling you God exists. The things that have been made by God, (laughs) executed through the sun, the spirit hovering over the face of the waters show you that God exists but you are ultimately not saved at all by general revelation you are condemned by it god exists you are not god you are a sinner romans 2:14 to 16 you know from your conscience that you're off you know you do wrong and thus what you need still more is special revelation you need the whole counsel of god with the gospel of redemption at the burning center, you know God exists, but you suppress that truth. You're not confused. Uh, you're you're not just drifting along without any reasonable understanding to the world. Y- you don't have a knowledge problem. You have a suppression problem, and what you need ultimately is the special revelation of God in the Word. You need the gospel. You need the good news. You need need the only pick of the lock of your suppression of the truth of God. You need the word of Christ. And when, by God's grace, you have faith in Christ and you repent of your sin, you stop immediately, on the spot, right away, having the engine of suppression of the truth of God And now the settings are altogether reversed in the factory. And now you believe God because God has awakened your heart in the moment of regeneration to believe the gospel. And now everything reverses and that which you have seen clearly, you now embrace and you don't see the created order as a secular place that speaks to naturalistic origins with no designer At the outset. No, now you see all creation, to use Calvin's glorious phrase, as the theater of God's glory. And now you understand that every fact is God's fact. Every truth is God's truth. Every element of order owes to God. It's God's. Everything is God's. Satan owns nothing. He's only renting. God owns everything. And that helps you, as a believer, live unto God for his glory, employing every aspect of your heart, mind, soul, strength in treasuring God all your days, whatever vocation and calling he has given you, such that you, unlike the unbeliever, pay homage to the God who owns everything, who created everything. You see... That last sentence matters. God doesn't own everything if he didn't create everything. But if he did create everything, he owns everything. If you don't accept biblical creation, you have no grounds by which to claim that God owns everything. And you have just cut your little dinghy off from the three masted ship of God's truth. And you now drift in an endless ocean of confusion. Fourth and finally, this proposal that I have tracked throughout this podcast from Jay Johnson via Harzma is not the solution. It is the problem. This is a great short approach that shows us from Christianity today, tragically, I say this with no happiness or glee, not the way to preserve your faith, but the way to begin losing it. We do not fundamentally need to harmonize the biblical worldview with a secular worldview at any point. Unbelievers will see truth, and when they do, we can recognize that we are seeing truth together. Unbelievers use our same vocabulary. Unbelievers can even teach us truth in terms of kids in a school or something like this. At least historically. But when, for example, in Acts 17, 16 to 34, the Apostle Paul references uh, non-Christian voices, he is not saying with regard to Pindar or others, go and read all their works and you will find real, deep exploration of truth that you can then take back and harmonize with the Christian faith. No, what Paul is saying is that that poet understood one of God's facts. It's not at all wrong, therefore, for us to quote an unbeliever who is seeing something true. Paul does it in Acts 17. But Paul is not there saying, oh, okay, let's open this up. Um, I'm going to bring the Christian faith to the table and then I'm going to go over to this pagan thinker and I'm going to explore his body of thought and bring into the Christian faith what he has that is good because he has a whole system that I can now incorporate, even though it's not biblical, with mine. No, Paul is saying this thinker, this voice, he understood one of God's facts, one of the facts that God owns. By the way, God owns all facts. And so I'm going to cite him because your own poet reinforces my worldview. Paul isn't harmonizing Christianity with paganism. Paul is saying even the pagans imperfectly, inconsistently know something of the truth of God. Don't harmonize the biblical worldview with the secular worldview in any area don't just do that in 15 out of 18 areas do that in 1064 of 1064 areas do not harmonize the biblical worldview with a secular worldview instead find more confidence in the word not less this is the solution to ramp up your confidence in the word not to give into your doubt Deconstruction is not the way forward. Deconstruction, as it is commonly called, is not going to increase and strengthen your faith. I know some of the writers are clever and funny and learned, but know this, if you follow them, they will lead you off the solid rock. And furthermore, as we wrap up here, You must not try to save the faith by abandoning the faith. You must never think that you will keep the next generation secure in their Christian commitment if you take away elements of Christianity from them, from that commitment. That is not the way to preserve the faith. That is expressly the way to abandon the faith. If you take away the very first doctrine— that the narrative of Scripture gives us, the record of Scripture presents, you are at best profoundly destabilizing those who hear you, and you are at worst as the devil seeks them out and flies upon them as they sit under unsound doctrine, leading them fully, and finally, away from God into the fires of eternal judgment. Friends, the stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. There are only two paths. There is the broad path of destruction, which tracks with man's reason. And then there is the narrow path, which is led by Illuminated by the revelation of God, there is the word. The word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The word gives us every spotlight along the narrow way. The word and the word alone gives you what you need to make it through the wilds and mayhem of this wicked order. And pass through the fires and make it out of the valley of the shadow of death and get all the way to the gates of glory where by virtue of the spirit's work in you, the grace of God that has gotten you there, guarded you, as first Peter says, you will then not praise yourself. But you will give God much glory even as you hear, Well done, good and faithful servant from the one who made all things and the one who will very soon remake all things.